Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining another episode of Roll for Enterprise, where our focus is on technology in the enterprise. Dominic will not be with us today as he's still riding next to goats along the countryside, but that's all right. We have another excellent episode, and let's get started with IBM's 18-month company-wide email system migration that has been a disaster, according to sources. Lilac, any thoughts on that? Oh, I have thoughts on that, but I think Mike can probably give the overview real quick so that we understand from the perspective of IT, what happened, Mike? <laughs> happened, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, it, it, so there's an interesting article in, in, in the register, and it's uh, it's in the show notes if anybody wants to look it up. But bottom line, IBM has been planning for an 18-month-long email system migration. And, and I, I would assume this is like moving off of notes, and I guess there's some kind of you know, Outlook component and web component. Uh, and everybody needs to keep in mind that IBM sold that Lotus Notes software to to HCL maybe a year ago, two years ago. I'm not even sure how long ago. Uh, but apparently, it's um, yeah, their email system's been down or spotty for at least a week now. Uh, and from the sound of the registered article, employees have started to to lash out. In other words, talking to media, uh, posting, and and being quite vocal about it because they haven't been able to use email. In fact, the funniest part of the article is where um, I, I guess they couldn't get anybody at IBM to comment on the article. And then once it was published, they came back and, and gave uh, their comments, but they didn't email them the comments. They had to they had to dictate it, which uh, I think is a clear sign that email is not working no matter how much you want to deny it. But hey, look, I mean, these things are challenging, but I think the scariest, I mean, Okay, from, from an enterprise IT perspective, yes, it's challenging. You got to plan, you got to execute, you got to get it right, uh, and you need a certain level of maturity. But some of the scary comments in, in, in the article are employees really complaining about, like, how are we selling cloud services? How are we selling all these, uh, you know, professional services, all these systems, yet we can't get our own email migration correct? And I think, you know, to me, stepping back, looking at this from a big picture, it's it really shows how much IBM has has fallen. I don't know what, what your thoughts are, guys. I wonder. I mean, there's a sort of shoemaker goes barefoot quality to this narrative, right? That we you sit there and and think, well, surely they could get this right. But then let's sort of take a step back organizationally and think, are they? And I'm sure this team is exceptional. I'm sure the migration team is amazing in every way. Did they put? their absolute best talent on the internal email migration project with the right funding and the right level of um, uh, project management and investment and so forth as they would for an external third party. Like, are they, is this, are they treating themselves as they would treat JP Morgan Chase? My hunch, just a hunch is maybe not, but IT departments aren't usually known for being overfunded and over talented that's not a thing that the people have right mike like i don't think anybody's like you know what you could use another few million dollars in budget maybe that will really round things out for you no it's 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 really hard and to be honest i mean a project of that size with the company size we would i mean any company would probably go for with with external help right i mean but Mm -hmm. if you're ibm you you are the external help in in this case right so email is still relevant. There's two things, right? So email is still relevant. Um, I guess everybody talked about, you know, let's leverage, you know, collaborative tools like Slack and Teams and everything. So I guess email is still critical to the business. And the other thing is a voice. Uh, it seems like the employees have a voice. If they were able to bring this to the forefront, <clears throat> that's pretty, uh, that's, 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 you know, amazing to me. And then 
I, I can't help but laugh. They had to phone in. Let me get this straight. Like they had to call in to go ahead and give a rebuttal, if you will, or <laughs> they couldn't email it. Right. Yeah, that's it, scary. That's exactly. Which shows how, how sensitive it, it, it likely is. I mean, I, I think like, like back to your point, I mean, yeah, I mean, you probably not putting your best people, but I think at some point there's a, a checkpoint and a gate and a, a change that gets approved where people are asking the right questions, um, challenging others about the validity of a plan. You know, you've done yeah. some testing, you know, you know where your weaknesses are, you know where things can go wrong. And typically, you know, like if this goes wrong, we will take action X, Y, Z. Right. Um, and I mean, I, I don't like at some point, either governance or, or something inside that IT department failed. I mean, yeah. There's no, like, especially if you're out for like a week, I think that it's happening to IBM. I mean, you, you know, if you, if you recall, you know, it was always like IT departments, the strength was like, yeah, no one, I mean, how many executives used to say like, no one ever gets fired by using IBM, mm -hmm. but I think that's, that's changed a little. There, there's a stigma to some of these older IT organizations that have been around a while and, and let's lump IBM and HP together where I think people are reluctant now to use them because they're they're old, clunky, they're they're set in their ways. It's it's really hard to affect change at some of these big organizations. And you know, you look at like Amazon and Jeff Bezos thinking of companies last, you know, companies don't last forever, but we want to build a company that lasts forever. I, I don't think those companies are are built to last. Um and Part of the arguments in the article is that they're blaming the CFO, which is interesting because then you know it's become a, a nickel and dime kind of uh, culture everywhere. And that's uh, part of the problem, right? Like, why did we sell off, you know, A, B and C? And I think ultimately, you know, your board makes those decisions and they're looking for profits and how to grow. And yeah, maybe it's it's just not there when you when you look at the overall. The piece that struck me about what Zach said was around, you know, the employees having the voice to have that conversation. I think that there's no choice anymore to have that. Firstly, there's we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of humans. And so controlling what they have to say. I used to work for a company that said that I was unable to speak to the press about the weather if I cited where I worked. I couldn't look at the weather reporter and be like, fucking snowing outside. And they would have said, no, but you don't work for anybody in particular, right? Because you don't have an opinion on the weather as an employee of this company. And I was like, fine that's fine but like now we're not in that world we're in a world where a huge percentage of your employees are on twitter but let's even just take a step back further and say a huge number of your employees are working externally with customers with partners and so forth and if the email system is down for a week you're becoming painfully unresponsive and you do need to say something and by what mechanism do you say something well you say something on twitter because you can't send your people an email that's not an option. And so, you know, they're putting it out there and they're probably saying things like IBM emailed down. If you need me, text me. And it sort of spirals, right? That's, that's what happens. And, and in fact, like that's what happens. It's like shadow IT for communications is Twitter. And like, I don't, I don't think, I feel like they have a voice, but I feel like the initial impetus for communicating this broadly is actually straight up business necessity. Because if it, my IBM partner just went dark on me on a really active sales opportunity or customer engagement, I would be unhinged, right? <laughs> if they couldn't find a way to communicate, actually, this isn't my fault. Please find me on the pigeon network. Yeah. And this, and 
I think the other thing, Zach said, is email is still so critical to businesses. I mean, even, and you know, I, there are some companies who, who had initiatives a few years ago about going to zero email. They wanted zero. I mean, what a joke that is. I mean, I don't think you can move away from email. You can have other channels. And I think we do now. And we see like federation across uh, different chat tools that are that are happening. But email is still kind of the official way to, to communicate. I It drives me crazy when, you know, some conversations probably shouldn't happen over email, should happen over phone. But I think we, we're also building a generation that doesn't like the phone anymore. Um, I think voice calls are are almost becoming a thing of the past with some um, some generations that are that are coming <laughs> to the workplace. Yeah, uh, I mean the irony of a voice call being a thing of the past is funny right there for me. Um, I uh, <laughs> I feel like I feel like you're right. I mean, I certainly would never dare call somebody without like sending them a Slack message first to see if they were available. That just seems rude to me right now. And, um, and it, but you know, what's interesting is that that was rude to me in 2003 when I was an IBM employee, we all had some sort of IM tool. I actually don't remember what it was called. Same time. It was called same time. And it was like a text-based IM tool. And before you picked up the phone and dialed somebody's extension, you'd be like, got a second. And if they didn't say yes, you didn't call them. And I think we're, that's very much the the culture now. Like I, I would never pick up the phone unless somebody warned me that they were going to call. Like that's just horrible. So many, so many sales calls happen over phones that nobody picks up their phones. There's so many spammers, so many, yeah. I mean, it, it's just like, it, it's like junk mail coming to my phone in terms of a, a voice call. So yeah, unless you have a positive confirmation of who's calling or you're expecting an important call, then you're answering everything. But yeah, typically people don't answer phones. By the way, they're getting creative. I received, I, side note, I received an email a few days ago and it looked legit and it said, hey, Zach, let us know if you can't attend this meeting and blah, 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 blah. It was like a meeting invite. So I'm like, well, they're get, kicking it up a notch, aren't they? I looked at it yeah. twice and like, well, who's this from? And the email address I, I didn't recognize and I thought, wow. But uh, yeah, so now they're sending out email invites, literally invites, Mike, that you would first glance you I, I've I've gotten them too. If I know the person, I will call them up and 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 get get angry with them. Let's put it that way. But if I don't, I mean, I I just delete. But it, it's you know, like you can mess around my email, you mess around my calendar. Oh, you're at a different level right there. I oh gosh, say. those wedding <laughs> words. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't He's mess Italian, with my so calendar. Be careful. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Zach knows well. Hell yeah. So um, just to wrap it up, my thoughts on IBM, it just makes me wonder what, you know, what kind of planning went into this? What, I I don't know. There's so many questions I have, but one thing is certain that you're right, Lilac. I mean, email is crucial to the business for us to say it isn't. And I fell in that camp a little bit. I kind of thought to myself, do you really need email? I despise email, but, you know, we still need it. Um, And unfortunately, IBM is is, uh, feeling that right now. But, um, yeah, and I miss same time. I've used same time, by the way, Lilac, a lot in the thing <laughs> Lotus Notes and same time. And, oh, you know, yeah. it, it all just works. So why, I guess my question is, I guess they're moving for Office 365, Mike. Is that right? They were trying to go to a cloud-based solution. That is not my understanding. I oh. think this is, I, it's my understanding this is closer to an upgrade on the similar platform. Even worse. <laughs> because it, it, it's interesting because they're, they're a Slack customer, I guess, because people said that yeah. they're... They're communicating over account. Slack channels. Yeah. Yep. The references to W3 are uh, W3 is IBM's internal intranet, which, by the way, is, I think, the gold standard of intranets. Um, look at that. I just gave IBM a compliment. I, I think look that. Look at that. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? 
it's evolved um, too because w3 was around when i was at ibm now it's pushing 20 years ago and and it's you're right it, it is amazing like they have um even just the internal directory which is no small feat for the size of company that it is is tremendous it's like some sort of strange internal linkedin type thing and it i i love it um i, I think that they've done incredible work with the use of technology in that way um so props to them for some stuff um less so for email migrations yeah yeah i think internally i mean they're right i mean i think it at ibm has it together the the office of the cio and um if you look at it they they have a strong early adopter program and, and all stuff that i've tried to kind of get going in other places but it it's not so easy to get traction in in that area so and, and i don't know that they're such a tech company as as they as they were in the past so it's it's a bit it's a bit tough uh, really sad that that it's gone south and there's this much uh, complaints about it uh if we're still hearing about it next week though i would say they're going to be in pretty big trouble well, let us let us hope that whoever it is that hasn't slept in a week in the IT department gets this sorted out um, in the next few days because I'm beginning to feel awfully bad for them. Yeah, but by the way, uh, who does a, an email migration the week before quarter end? I uh, like that's that's also insanity. <laughs> like that Somebody is insanity. Somebody with a very interesting set of incentives. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, get it done by Q2 or else. Yeah, that's and right. Then that's you right. You pull the trigger. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Terrible, terrible. Okay, should we shift gears? Yeah, let's shift gears. Mike, um, why don't you kick us off in the next one? So acquisitions, uh, Zerto was acquired by HPE. A uh, little less valuation than we would have thought maybe a couple years ago, but that seems to be the norm right now for some of these uh, infrastructure companies, uh, these acquisitions. Arista uh, acquiring Big Switch Networks for really pennies on the dollar, the employees are actually underwater in their options. They go to a startup and you get sold and you're underwater. Uh, it's pretty insane. But, um, you know, Mike, any thoughts there around these acquisitions and what's happening there in, in that world? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one to judge. So I, I've never used Zerto and I, I haven't heard much about them. I, I guess uh, you guys would be, but it's, it's I guess, cloud disaster recovery. Yep. Um, I think the, the numbers are shocking here, right? I mean, they're being acquired by, by HPE. 370 million, but they've raised 162 million. And, and you know, that's, yeah, since 2009. So they've been going at it for 12 years. So it's really like, you know, I, I don't think that's a, that's a great exit, right? I mean, it's, it looks pretty painful. I mean, obviously HP is incorporating them into whatever cloud offering uh, they have, but it's, yeah, and I we've seen a few of these now, right? Like Big Switch, Zerto, and um, and I think it'll continue to happen. And you know, I think here's what here's what I look at it and and what I see: the money that's being made in all these partners, technology providers, it's happening. The money's being made in the channel; it's not being made here. And I think that's the one shocking part because I, you know, if you listen to episodes that we recorded maybe a year ago, I, I would say the channel is dying. But I think the channel is probably making more money than these, than these companies, and and that's part of the problem. The, I think part of the problem is we have so many technology players, so many solutions that are getting pitched at us every every day. Which, by the way, most of them don't make sense anymore because we're all cloud based and serverless, or so I say. Um, but I think the money is not being made there. It's like it's like car makers like who's making the money the car maker or the dealership eventually you need 
to knock out the dealership. How do you do that? And I think that's a, a big struggle. But yeah, maybe maybe Lilac, you know more about about Zerto and, and HPE. How, how do you see this all kind yeah, of playing I out? Or what? For years, and then I competed with Zerto for years, and so I have a lot of um, information on this on this market. They're a replication tool, right? They're the same kind of replication tool that you saw from like we owned the Double Take technology. For a while when I was at Carbonite, it's the same, it's same, same. Uh, I mean, obviously somebody's going to draw you a chart with Harvey balls that explains why one is better than the other, but I'm going to tell you same, 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 right? Um, and, and sort of analogous, but not quite the same as the technology that powers Veeam. So Veeam claims the same market. They have a slightly different approach. They don't have continuous replication. They have backup-based replication. The question is how often can you take the backup? Um, either way, regardless, right? It's an enabling technology for something like a DRAS solution um, or a backup of the service if you insist. Um, the, so the DRAS providers right, are, are a strange market because you've got a set of MSPs. There's only so many independent clouds and then a few hyperscalers. The hyperscalers are not deploying any of this technology, mostly because they're going to build some redundancy on their own or some replication on their own because they're not going to go pay a third party at scale for this kind of replication. It's just not a thing they're going to do. It doesn't pan out. So then you've got, like you say, Mike, a channel. And the MSPs are a significant channel, right? I was at one of those MSPs and we did brisk business in this technology doing DRAS for customers. It is gated by the fact that the, um, you can do it within the cloud to workloads inside the cloud. You can do it on-prem to the cloud. Um, and, and the play kind of works, but I think the dynamics of this sort of second or third tier cloud market below the hyperscaler market is actually kind of tricky. And then being an arms dealer into that system is also kind of tricky. Um, and so for a while, this was a company that was like the five star gold standard darlings of, of the business continuity industry, right? Like if you were in this game, Zerto was the one you couldn't afford to buy. And, um, and they've obviously that's changed. Um, partly, I think, because maybe the interest in being in this game has changed for a lot of companies. And there's only a few people who are in the position to make this acquisition. Um, and so, you know, I think, to their credit, they're a breakthrough company as an Israeli startup that launched a Boston office fairly early on and developed a thorough channel-based go-to-market and grew beyond what would be a technology tuck-in, which is often the destination of Israeli startups, cool technology, no go-to-market. They had a strong go-to-market. They had a heyday. They had hopes of an IPO. Something turned a little south and didn't, they couldn't, you know, pull out of that tailspin. Um, and it's, it's kind of sad, honestly, because they were, they were kind of incredible for a while. So I have a different, I, I agree, but I have a little bit of a different take on these acquisitions. When I look at who backs, you know, these startups, you know, I look at the VC groups and I look at Big Switch, I look at Zerto. I don't see any of the big names. I, I just wonder, you know, we have so many VC companies, all this free capital that's been flowing. I didn't see a Sequoia. I didn't see a Greylock. I didn't see an A16Z, you know, the typical players that they're going to sink money into it and they're going to get their money out. So I, I just say that it's just an observation. I don't know that it means anything, but, you know, typically uh, from my experience, when I see a Sequoia, you know, uh, and it's an infrastructure, it's Cisco or someone else going after them or the other guys, they, they know what they're doing. Um, I'm not saying these one, these other, these other VC companies don't know what they're doing, but what I'm saying is uh, maybe money is, I wouldn't say easier to come by uh, with some of these other VCs, I'm not, but I don't know the processes. It could be, but I just wonder if there's something there. There, there's also, 
there's a lot of startups, right? There's a lot of startups that come and come and go. There's a lot of startups that fail. Uh, I, I disagree with the names. I, I think like anybody can fund something that is going to break through. I, I think here the the failure was they didn't know when they were at their peak, and they they took it all the way to peak, and they didn't do anything there. And when they started to go down, they did not do anything on the way down. And this is kind of the result. The other thing is, I mean, I don't know. I I look at both of these and they feel like features rather than companies to me because they could easily be, I mean, an Amazon and a a Microsoft is not going to buy these guys. They're just going to build a feature into their current offering. And and that's like, do you buy or do you build? And, and you know, if if you're ever faced with that, that question, typically you choose build because you know that the, you know, uh, unless there's something that's going to take you long to build, but, you know, technology is moving so fast that it passed them and they didn't realize it. And it's really like the tunnel vision. So, yeah, I I kind of agree, but don't there, uh, there, Zach. I feel like maybe, Zach, you've got, I actually agree with you, but I think I agree with you for a different reason, honestly. I think that when we look at the big VCs, I think we don't actually genuinely know how these boards are managing these startups, right? They have rules and they'll say that we're focused on humans or we're focused on profit or we're focused on EBITDA or we're focused on whatever. And they have these words that they say, but I don't think that those words actually tell us what they're doing to manage the company and what kinds of controls and uh, um, and engagement they have. And I think if we actually were allowed into those rooms, and we will never be, to do a cross industry analysis of how different VC firms manage their portfolio companies, we would see wildly different behavior patterns that probably predict these outcomes better than anything that they're putting on their website. But those behavior patterns are, are the things that happen behind closed doors. I think that's exactly what my point was, is, you know, the people that are on these boards and some of these VCs, they understand the space. You have the right people that are engaged. They know when to say, look, you know what, let's not invest here. Hey, it's time to go ahead and push these guys to exit. And Mike, I agree with what you said. I, I think that the cloud, um, but I don't want to agree with everybody. I, 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 let's, we don't have to always agree, but uh, I do agree on the cloud, which is, yeah, I mean, things are being, uh, they're moving so quickly. Uh, features are being developed very, very fast. I mean, it's it's a different world out there. So this whole startup landscape is, is changing quickly. I, you know, I've come from a couple startups. I, I was at Arista well before the IPO and, you know, was at an AI ops startup and and I was at Absher, which is acquired by Juniper, for really for pennies on the dollar. I mean, there's another one. Absher was acquired a few months ago. I mean, I, 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 I can say this much without giving out numbers. Let's just say it was a travesty, right? So it's, it's you know, I've seen a successful exit, kind of a failure, if you will, maybe, and then a uh, an exit, which to me wasn't that great. But um, I don't know. I tell everybody, you know, I wouldn't look at startups as much if you know everybody's like oh i want to hit it rich i'm going to go to a startup i think those days are gone i think you know i I like this whole paradigm of a year before or after an ipo to me a sweet spot is one year before one year after if you get in that sweet spot i think you'll do fine because there's an exit strategy it's you know they're going public you know that so a year before an ipo to a year after i think you're going to do well you look at a data dog for example the people that went there right after the ipo have done well you got splunk you know years past i think you'll be fine but the the, the days of I'm going to go to a startup and their series A, series B, I'm going to do well. That did, that doesn't, that's, I haven't seen that work out for, for many people. But I think part of that has been crushed because of big tech. Big tech is, yeah, you, you know, is hindering innovation because they just like, 
the brain power stays within big tech because they pay so well and and some of these people are are, are compensated yeah, very well uh, in, in these companies that's part of it I think also it's it's also a bit of founders or you know when I when I hear of a company and the founder and let's let's use zoom as an example right founder worked at Cisco yeah he was on Webex and then he leaves to start his own thing, which is kind of a competitor to WebEx, but not. I mean, you know that he's kind of voiced his opinion internally. People haven't listened. And now he believes he can do it better outside. And he he's raising funding. I mean, which means he believes in himself. People believe in him. I, I think that's always kind of a hit. And, and and you see that also in in the network space a lot. You see it in a bit of the data center space. Um, but I think those tend to work really well because it's, it's almost like somebody would, with a chip on their shoulder, if you will. Yeah. I followed, I followed that exact philosophy when I went to Arista. I mean, I sat there, I'll never forget, uh, my home office and pondered for a whole weekend. And I said, look, I'm just gonna follow Jay Sheree and Andy Becklesheim. I said, look, these people are successful. They've, they've done it now. That was unique. So I must say just for everybody's, uh, people that aren't aware, Arista was privately funded. There was no VC money, and those are a different animal altogether. It was a unicorn in and of itself. There was, you know, $100 million put down by Andy to, to start this company because nobody wanted to take on Cisco, and they were successful. So that uh, that was unique. As a matter of fact, it was so unique that before the IPO, Greylock, everybody wanted in. They set up an internal uh, portal, which is actually common for startups, and said, hey, we were, they were buying shares at 15 and 20 bucks a share before the IPO. So it was a very unique thing. But uh, that said, you're, you're right, Mike. I, I made that exact decision based on who I was going to follow, and I have a lot of respect for for the leadership there, and they've done well. So you're right, and, and I think you were saying the same thing, Lilac, right? Just even on the board side of the VCs, I mean, just kind of follow, you know, who's who's engaged here, who's making these decisions. But I will say, I was shocked at Zerto. Um, I haven't worked with it. I've, I've known Zerto for a while. I've known sales reps there, and known some some other people that work there, and it's. I'm kind of shocked, but you know, yeah. congrats to HP. You got a good solution. Let's hope they deploy it. And, and when Zerto started, did they have competitors or were they? Yeah, so of... they competed with DoubleTake a um, long time. So DoubleTake was founded by a group of people who I actually hold in the highest esteem. They're wonderful people. And we ended up acquiring them just shortly after I joined Carbonite. Um, and, and it worked, right? It was a, it's a, it's a technology that, that worked, but I would say was um, deinvested from a go-to-market perspective. It had been it, it changed hands a few times, so it wasn't independent by the at some point, and and just sort of didn't have the same um, cachet as the hot new startups. And then Veeam kept trying, right? But when Zerto was founded, Veeam was a backup solution. It really couldn't execute against the DRAS story. Um, over time, though, Veeam is a formidable competitor with very deep pockets and very aggressive go-to-market. And so basically what they ended up doing was was pushing the technology to the point that that it was, I wouldn't say it's not exactly the same. It is not the same. Like you you can I can make a very impassioned case for why it doesn't execute against the exact same value prop, but I would tell you that it's probably good enough for a lot of situations. And it's good enough with strong marketing and strong customer support and a strong channel and therefore more than sufficient and became a formidable competitor. Now, at what point does Zerto acknowledge that Veeam 
is their primary competitor when the technology is sort of good enough and not the same? Well, that's a straight up innovator's dilemma problem, right? And and you can get caught by that and by the hubris around that really quickly. Doubletake was never a company that they worried about um, uh, because they're good to market and their whole shtick. Like you you walk to a Doubletake booth at a trade show and you're like, wow, they're going to hand me a pen. And you walk to a Zerto booth and they're going to have like a t-shirt cannon. Like it was just a fundamentally different level of engagement. Um, Zerto had parties, Zerto had, <laughs> like they did all the startup things and their marketing team was exceptional. They're some of my friends. I, um, but like that doesn't, that doesn't overcome the hubris of finding yourself in a market that has converged and therefore you might not be in the position of strength that you were in a few years earlier. So let's put this to bed. But before we do, uh, I got this. I just remember that there was a lawsuit with EMC. And I wonder if that had anything to play with it into this. And you mm-hmm. think that that caught up to them or that maybe they settled it. I don't know. I like it. And maybe you I don't, honestly know. don't know. No. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yes. So I think it's, uh, we got a, few more minutes if you want we'll do a little speed round and the next topic is AT&T moving 5G mobile network to Microsoft Cloud wow mike what do you say <laughs> uh so we spoke about the fall of IBM let's talk about the fall of AT&T i mean this is like it, it's kind of ridiculous i mean they've they've made mistake after mistake so the, here's a company who tries to sell their cloud solution, which I don't know if you could consider it a cloud or co-hosting or whatever you would do, but yeah, they have marketing spin around it. And now they're moving their 5G mobile network into Microsoft's cloud, into Azure. I think, you know, forget AT&T. This is like Microsoft is is just, again, firing on all cannons, uh, again, making the right moves uh, and just what they're going to gain with this and and the knowledge and the insights is, is yeah, kudos to them. I mean, um you know, and I, and I can't see Microsoft doing any wrong. I mean, I think everybody, I mean, there's not many people who will, who will bash and talk bad about Microsoft. I mean, they're just, um, they're just doing everything right. So this, this is an impressive move. Uh, I don't know how you convince AT&T to do it, but obviously they're doing it because the press release is on the AT&T website. I mean, <laughs> you'll see it in the show notes. It's quite impressive. So I think of the acquisition made about a year ago, and this will be in the show notes, where they acquired Affirmed Networks. Kind of went under the radar. COVID had just hit. It was March. But it was a big deal because Affirmed is, you know, when it comes to 5G, they are a player, great startup. And I think we might have spoken about it, Mike, even before the the podcast got off the ground. Right? I think we spoke about this. Like, here goes Microsoft again. Now they're pushing in a 5G. And it just goes to show you their vision. I mean, they started making these acquisitions over a year ago, a year to two years ago. And there's a couple other acquisitions they've made. And here we are. Good old Mike. And you're right. Let's focus on what the the flip side of this is Microsoft's winning. And wow, the cloud companies having 5G infrastructure. I, there, there's a real arms race between AWS and, and Microsoft happening. I, I think it just, um, you, you know, Amazon needs to spin out AWS sooner than than, than later. I, I, I don't think they see it as, an, as important because they are so big. Uh, but I think eventually, you know, Azure will be bigger and people will wonder what happened. And you can look back to, to probably Amazon being a little too arrogant for, for themselves. And, and yeah. so think about it when you read the article, one of a firm's biggest clients was AT&T. Coincidence? I don't know. Yeah, well, something at play? I don't know. Again, and I also have to think about AWS now there's new leadership. I mean, are they going to really be able to hang with Satya and his team because they are their lights out. We, we talk about them seems like two, three times a month and how they're executing and they keep out executing everybody. 
but you know they missed the boat and they learned from it do you guys remember like when vmware was was rising and i remember when vmware was nothing and then vmware was rising and then and everybody said the next next year is going to be hyper v zero next year is going to be hyper v zero and i used to actually i had i remember these conversations even with the gm that was managing that group he was a wonderful guy and he was like we're on it we're building parity we're doing it and it was like next year next year next year i'm going to tell you like that next year never really came like there's a lot more hyper v in the world than there was 15 years ago there's a lot more in EMEA than there is in the US but the truth is the insane market of hypervisors passed Microsoft by to a very great extent and what i have to give them mad props for is they picked up cloud and they ran hard and were not going to make that same mistake twice and you know we weren't sure which way it was going to go a decade ago but now i think it's clear it's clear that they did it and that's super impressive by the way, I have a philosophy on why there's more Hyper-V in Europe than there is in, in North America. And, and, and I, you think and, it has to do with the pronunciation? Because I think VMware is harder to say with a French accent than Hyper-V. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But, but you know, maybe maybe it is. No, <laughs> what I would say is that European companies are much more cost-focused than North American companies. I think there's a different mindset of... We will make money by spending more and we will outspend you to get there in, in the US. Whereas in Europe, it's much more cost, cost, cost. And at some point, someone looks at it and says, wow, I'm spending all this money on Microsoft licenses, spending all this money on VMware licenses. And wait a second, because I buy so much Microsoft licenses, I get Hyper-V included in that, yeah. but I'm paying VMware. And then that's where VMware loses it. Now, somebody could complain, you know, that's, that's a monopoly monopoly power like it's you know and, and and go after that but i think this is how they want a lot of the business in in, in europe um and, and i think in north america it's like mm, no we trust vmware there's no way we're we're adding this additional risk of hyper v even though at now it's just yeah what's the real difference okay you know they have this feature that feature who cares at the base level they're the same oh and i'm gonna get i'm gonna get heat from vmware fans aren't I? yeah <laughs> Ah, well, we, we can deal with that. We can, we, deal can with that. we can handle it. We have poked on many, many more livid bears. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, I think those are, uh, those are some great topics. I think we're going to wrap it up, and uh, we'll welcome our original MC, Dominic, back next week. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter.com, Roll for Enterprise. We are on LinkedIn as Roll for Enterprise. Ask us questions. Engage with us on social media. Uh, we will respond. And... I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. And for those in the U.S., hope you have a great 4th of July holiday. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everybody.